Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Oh my God, it is so hot in the studio and we're working so hard for you. Give us some money. Five bucks a month gets you ad-free Canada Land. Click the link on the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join and it'll take you just moments to get our premium podcast feed and you will support what we're doing this very hot summer. Thank you. Hey, Nora Loretto, activist, journalist, joining me once again from Quebec City. Hey, how's it going? It's going okay. It's hot. <laughs> Today, Nora, I mean, sure, you could call him a heavily armed conspiracy theorist in a pickup truck with a plot to assassinate the prime minister. But to the press, he was just your friendly neighborhood sausage maker. Sounds white to me. Mm, mm-hmm. Also, Nora, the sentinels of the great Western traditions of reason, free inquiry, and letters have taken a bold stand against something, I guess. They really don't say exactly. Good to have you back. Good to be here. This episode is brought to you by Krista Barclay, Steph Lake, Fergus Haywood, Jennifer Long, Erica Kasupinen, R. Griffin, Jackie Esmond, and Debrilla Bronstein. 
I live in Kelowna, BC, and I'm a quality assurance manager in the wine industry. I support Canada Land because it offers an unfiltered and raw view of the Canadian media landscape. Jesse can be annoying and cynical sometimes, but it is his dogged pursuit of the truth that is so valuable here. I respect his willingness to be challenged and to surround himself with people who can freely disagree with him. The entire podcast portfolio is impressive, and I can't wait to listen to more investigative pieces such as the Niagara Falls series. Thank you, and keep up the great work. Some tense moments in Ottawa this morning. Police arrested an armed man who gained access to the grounds of Rideau Hall. And this all began just before 7 a.m. when an armed man entered the grounds here but was taken into police custody shortly after. The suspect, identified as 46-year-old Corey Hurin. Hurin now faces 22 charges, most relating to weapons, with one count of uttering threats. So, Nora, as CBC had it, the people from this guy's hometown in northern Manitoba, shocked, shocked by what happened, Mm -hmm. the arrest at Rideau Hall. Uh, Here's what CBC had to say. Corey Hurin, 46 years old, lived in Bowsman, Manitoba, a small municipality about 400 kilometers northwest of Winnipeg. Quote, we're all a bit shocked that something happened in Ottawa, said Walter Passamaniuk, the reeve of the municipality. Of Mintonis Bowsman. I had to look up Reeve. Maybe <laughs> Me everybody... too. <laughs> it's, a, it's a local official. Maybe everybody knows that. This particular Reeve did not know Hurin personally, aside from brief interactions at the co-op grocery store in the neighboring community of Swan River, where Hurin worked behind the meat counter. He described Hurin as a good community member, known for his friendly demeanor and for cooking garlic sausages that his customers raved about. Quote, when I walked by him, it wasn't just no answer. It was, quote, hello, how are you doing today? Passamaniac said. Nora, we're six paragraphs into this article. <laughs> and so far, this Corey Hearn guy, he sounds swell to me. I mean, thank you, CBC, for finally reporting some good news about a nice <laughs> local guy. There's no need to read any further, is there? No, not at all. Maybe just one more paragraph. Hearn whom CBC News has confirmed is the man in custody, was armed when his vehicle ran into the main pedestrian entrance at Rideau Hall Thursday, July 2nd, around 6.30 a.m. Nora, they found this guy with threats against Justin Trudeau, and he had in his possession an M14 rifle, a high standard revolver, which is a restricted firearm, which with, he did not have a license for, a Lakefield Mossberg shotgun and a Dominion Arms Grizzly shotgun and some kind of a hand scrawled, you know, a manifesto apology about his personal troubles and how Canada is becoming a communist dictatorship. But before we get to all that stuff, he sounds like good people. <laughs> The coverage, I wish I could say I was surprised by the coverage, uh, but it was it was so bad that it was a caricature of what I would expect the national media to do in a situation like this. Like the lead in my mind is not that this guy was a friendly local sausage maker. It was the fact that he's a member of the Canadian Rangers. Like he's he's an active member of the Canadian Armed Forces. And yeah. he one day decided to just drive across Canada. I mean, driving from northern Manitoba, there was a lot of stops along the way where he could have said to himself, hmm, I've made it to Sault Ste. Marie. Maybe I should stop. Maybe this is a bad idea. But no, he continues on. So I read this story and I have a lot of questions that are not answered by his local Reeve who doesn't know him or how delicious his sausages are, which by the way, like really, like, are they actually delicious? Is this something we're supposed to believe? Or is just this like the opinion of some sausage guy? 
because uh, maybe they're dry. Maybe they're not that good. I can't speak to the level of verification, uh, whether or not these were tasty sausages or not. <laughs> like the story sounds like it was really verified, like almost as if the author had been given a sample of the sausages and could say, look, you know what? This guy was messed up, but he made a, a good fucking sausage. It's so pathetic. And, and you just want the journalists to get it right. You want them to be able to tell us what is going on in this situation. It was the same weekend as a far-right rally in Ottawa. Was there any connection with this far-right rally? He's worried about his truck, and so the truck is a big part of this story. Was, was there any connection to the United We Roll movements, or what's his activity online? You know, we found from activists, from folks like the Yellow Vest Watch movement, uh, and they're, they're the ones that are reading what's being written online about the far right. We learned so much more about his radicalization than we did in any of these stories, uh, whether it's the CBC or whether it's Mercedes Stevenson with all of her anonymous military sources just happening to give her this information, telling us about how sad this guy was and how difficult his, his life had become under quarantine. It. You know, you and I were talking a couple of months ago now about how the most violence under quarantine is going to be wrought by white men. I mean, this is the narrative. This is actually the story. But instead, the CBC is like, oh, finally, we can put the word sausage in a headline. <laughs> like, what the hell was that? I don't know if it's fair to say that they weren't digging into this guy's uh, radicalization and Internet posts. The CBC did tweet that uh, Facebook posts from his business show humor and hardships <laughs> of the COVID-19 pandemic. And like you're you're right. It is a parody of a parody. Like there's shots of him with his like wraparound Oakley's. You know, here's another tweet. Armed suspect arrested for barging into Rideau Hall, known as friendly sausage maker. And I'm I've been glib. I'm not laughing like this is uh it's groundhog day it's the it's the friendly neighborhood denturist again and it's not as if we're saying that this coverage is wrong and wrong-headed and the CBC is saying no this is the right way to cover it they deleted those tweets they seem to accept every time that this happens oh sorry we shouldn't have had such warm fuzzy biographical posts and such sympathetic posts we've taken that down won't happen again and then it happens again and there's just like no introspection, no reflection on this. And meanwhile, like, you know, it's really this is the surface level. You point to it, Nora. And, and you know, yes, you and I were talking about it being white guys who are going to do this. But really, it was your it was your prediction. You were very prescient. Uh, we have a problem, you know, like we have a, a terrorist problem in this country. We have like uh, like both of these guys, Nova Scotia and Manitoba. They're like you know, adjacent, related, connected to uh, police, militarization, paramilitarization, they're, they're armed and they are dangerous. And I want to know what is law enforcement? What is my government doing to protect me from these middle-aged white guys? You know, we're not going to get to that level if we're just interested in like, were they a nice guy? Do they say, hey, how you doing? Or do they actually say, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, when you would run into them at the meat counter. Like, who the fuck cares? Can we actually talk about like this this menace to society that we're facing? Well, it's because like, obviously, the person who wrote the article, the person who edited the article, uh, anyone whose eyes saw it before it was posted, they identify more with the individual than with the people that individual is targeting. And I think that that's really important because that's where you see the manifestation of whiteness within the Canadian media. It becomes so clear that you don't look at this and you think, wow, this guy is a threat to me. 
you look at this and think, wow, this could happen to my brother who I know is posting really sketchy memes all the time online. And so then you start to personalize this and talk about this in a way that is just so isolated that there's really no thinking about how these things are connected. There's also a story out of Toronto that the media is continuously getting wrong again, um, where these anti-mask activists are getting lots of airtime. And one of the key players in the anti-mask group in Toronto is another one of these online, radicalized, far-right, racist shitheads. And the problem with the way that that the media frames these white men operating in isolation with one another is that it makes it impossible for us to have this conversation of these connections, that this is part of a movement. And we actually in Canada have no idea how significant or how big this movement is. We have some some ideas. We can see how many people come out to a rally. We can see how much support that these folks get from conservative politicians when they start their events like the United We Roll a thing which was supported by mainstream conservative politicians. And we can see the connection to the rhetoric uh, that that a lot of the conservatives are really driving home, uh, really targeting Justin Trudeau as being like the just the, the absolute worst of the worst of the worst. And, you know, as someone who thinks that Justin Trudeau is the worst, I mean, you know, there's a way you can talk about this stuff without making him into like the antichrist communist plot given by the globalists at the United Nations or whatever it is these folks believe. But this is a a full on paranoid ideology. Like, you know, I'm no great fan of our prime minister, but like this is just a a bonkers, you know, Canada is a totalitarian communist state and therefore I have to take a stand and and, and assassinate the prime minister. Like I don't know of a violent, radical, stupid ideology that's much worse than that. Like that's incredibly paranoid and incorrect and wrong. I keep bringing it back to just what is being done to keep people safe from people like this. And, and, and you know, it, something could be done. Like, you know, Harper proposed a barbaric cultural practices snitch line. Can we have a snitch line for these guys? It's not hard to track them. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a GoFundMe for his family that his buddies put up. It burst through its goal. They've raised uh, almost $10,000 as you and I are speaking. And it's a great resource if you want to find out who's sympathetic to this guy. Here's uh, one of his donors, James Quistra who donated $250, who writes, kudos on your fundraiser, Bill. My sympathy to Corey's family. But they should hold their heads high to be associated with a true hero of Canada. Like, duh is spelled like duh. The remains of this once great country could use a few more folks with some balls and some brains. Mm -hmm. Respect, Corey. I think James Koistra should be getting a knock on his door from the RCMP. I hope he is. Well, he's not. He's probably a member of the RCMP, right? Like, <laughs> there is so many connections of power to these folks. Like, this is a guy who was trained to kill by the Canadian military, and he was on active duty with the Canadian Rangers. And the Canadian Rangers are supposed to patrol Canadian sovereignty in the Arctic, right? There are very clear connections between law enforcement generally and these movements. There's so many red flags, but the problem is that. They are not considered a threat because they are not a threat to the status quo in Canada that upholds whiteness and white supremacy. They are a threat to people who are not white. They are a threat to people they disagree with. They are a threat, clearly, uh, you know, in the case of the guy out in Nova Scotia, they were a random threat because he just went shooting everybody, not necessarily targeted. We don't know very much still about what happened there in terms of who he chose to, to kill. 
But in this yeah, situation, Nora, the, the, they're a threat to everybody. I mean, I, I see what you're saying on some sort of a philosophical, ideological level. But Wartman went and killed people specifically and indiscriminately. This guy was going to kill the prime minister. They are a threat to all people. And Canadians know who these guys are. This guy was a member of the local like Lions Club and various other things. He had his military buddies. People listening to this podcast know about that guy in their community who goes on about fucking Trudeau is guilty of treason. And they also know that that guy might be into hunting. Like we know who these guys are. Like the next guy to do this is known to somebody listening to this podcast. For sure. But the reason why I'm, I'm insisting that we understand this at this philosophical level is it, it's because it explains why the police are not taking this seriously or it explains why the media doesn't look at this and say this is a case of terrorism. This is a terrorist who tried to kill the prime minister and we need to understand this as terrorism. And our headline is not going to be that he's a sausage maker, but that he was trained by the Canadian armed forces and uh, and is an active member of the Canadian Rangers. That should have been in the headline and it is not in the headline, has not been in the headline. At least I, I haven't seen a headline like this. And it's because and it's because, again, we have to understand this as they are dangerous men but they're not dangerous to the status quo they're dangerous to everybody who exists outside the status quo and then like kind of in the same way that covid is going to just hit everybody even if it's only hitting people who are homeless or only hitting people who are poor it's going to you know spill over and hit everybody but this is so important and it helps to actually explain why there's such complacency on this stuff and I think that, you know, folks who listen to Canada Land, as you say, are going to have people in their lives who might fit this profile to, to you know, more or less, you know, up right up until the, well, I don't think he would actually act on these kinds of things. And in the last couple of weeks, one of my friends started saying stuff like this, actually exactly like this, the same exact playbook, said it into in an email to my partner and their their old bandmates. And the, in, and the, the hook was how much he hates Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my partner and I and, and then his friends have been just like strategizing. How do we deal with this kind of radicalization? How do we confront him? How do we weed out some of the things that he's saying and making making it sure that he understands that this is wrong or bad or racist or, or whatever? While at the same time, like asking ourselves, is it even worth it? Is this guy too far gone? And so uh, he challenged him. He really, really specifically challenged him on every single one of these points and really forced him to, to really account for why he has these opinions. What did he say? <laughs> at first it was like oh fuck you you know i'm not fucking interested in this and he came around and actually they had several uh, conversations and it's very clear that there's a lot of other issues going on and that maybe he doesn't actually believe this stuff i mean it was a full recantation of what he said i don't know if we can believe it necessarily but i think that it's a really good reminder that even when it feels like there's nothing you can do you have to confront your friends and your family and you have to make them understand that all of this plot like this whole conspiracy that that has been constructed to explain why so many white men are suffering and in this in my friend's case like there's a lot of really serious reasons for why there is suffering there is a conspiracy that's making people suffer And it's not a far right conspiracy that's coming from China through Marxism, through Black Lives Matter, which a lot of people are saying, or that's coming through the the United Nations that's going to invade the United States and then invade Canada, which is also what people are saying. The problem is, is that we're not really reporting or talking about what these forces are, which are capitalism, which are forcing people into low paying work, making people's lives miserable, making people uh, sicker and, and harder to access, you know, medical services, mental health services and this kind of thing. But that just gets passed off as a left wing idea so often. And and that's that's where I find myself, like finding myself at the end of the threats from these kinds of men, um, laughing off those threats because that's all I can do. And knowing that until as a society we start to take domestic terrorism seriously 
and understand terrorism not just as a threat against the power that the status quo has, but actually just a generalized threat against all people in the community that that person locates themselves, that this is going to continue. I agree in broad terms that the pressures that are making life unlivable, that have people's backs against the wall, the same pressures that are making some people take to the streets and demand uh, their liberties or demand some some form of equity in the, in the system uh, through, I think, really positive protests. Those are the exact same pressures that are making like idiots like this snap and seek to assassinate the prime minister. I, you know, I got to quibble when you say that they're not a threat to the status quo. I think if you're trying to assassinate the prime minister, you're a threat to the status quo. But, you know, your, your analysis goes deeper and more philosophical than mine. I, I have like really direct concerns about about the next gunman. And I, you know, my, my focus is on the media. And I agree with you, like when we are so focused on the biographical information, we are not just doing our jobs of like, what are the networks? And so I guess in just wrapping this one up, there are a few journalists that I want to alert people to who, who they've kind of carved out for themselves analysis of the networks of, you know, white extremist Canada as something that I think has become a bit of like a gonzo journalism niche. It should not be considered that. It's some important work. So Mac Lamoureux, Advice, and Alex Boudelier at the Toronto Star and Justin Ling freelancing here and there, they're actually, you know, and, and there are some others. Yes. And Ryan Thorpe, Ryan Thorpe are actually in, like they're getting into the Canadian military. They're getting into the online forums. They're compiling lists of who these people are, what they're saying. They're doing the work that law enforcement should be doing. And uh, people should be boosting their work and, and reading it and encouraging news organizations to do more work like that. If I can just add, I mean, I I also do uh, some of that, that work a little bit. I don't write so much about it these days because I find it just so depressing and difficult. And also <laughs> no one will publish me. But I, for a period of about four months, every single night, I was in uh, some of the biggest mainstream far right uh, Canadian message boards. And I read thousands of messages every single night, specifically looking for the kinds of threats that people were making. And this was about in 2016 that I was doing this. And at about month three, I mean, my mental health took a, a walk off a cliff in reading this stuff because it is so desensitizing every single night, just threat after threat after threat against whoever they wanted to threaten. It was obviously almost always Justin Trudeau, but there were a lot of other people, Rachel Notley, of course, Catherine McKenna, a lot of, of high profile liberals. And it is so... I mean, it's really hard to to overstate what a threat this really is. And that, you know, you think of people in this pressure cooker situation, spending all their time online, listening to people feeding back the same kind of violence that they're putting out there on these message boards and forums. It is so dangerous. As you say, Jesse, there's going to be another situation. We know this. And the evidence is all there. You can see it. And the fact that the RCMP or local police have not at all taking this seriously and neither has the liberal government really like considering how threatened they are they're not taking this seriously either it is so frustrating and as someone who you know has been threatened thousands and thousands of times by these fucking pieces of shit i'm just so tired of the lack of attention the lack of analysis and and then also you know smearing those of us who dare to even say this stuff aloud and and to call this stuff out it's just such fucking bullshit and the media are so complicit so fucking complicit that i mean if i could keep going i'll just go into a rant that'll last probably five days we'll publish you nora <laughs> yeah i know send us those pitches Nora, you are an old hand by now. You know that on this show, we duly note things that need to be duly noted. We've got a bunch today. I'll kick it off if that's okay. It's your show. It is. So, uh, <laughs> so I'll take, and I'm going to, I'm going to exert that privilege and, uh, I'm going to update people on a story that I duly noted the other week about 
the former Liberian warlord who was assassinated in London, Ontario. Listeners may recall that story. Update on it. London, Ontario police have arrested and charged in connection with Bill Horace's death a Toronto police officer. The police officer's son is wanted and at large for second degree murder. This story is incredible, and I hope people pay really close attention to it because I suspect that the fact that the guy's a police officer and the the guy's the police officer's son is going to play a pretty important role in this whole story. So I'm going to duly note this, and I'm watching it closely too. What do you have for us? I want to duly note that I think the pandemic is doing something to Jason Kenney and making Jason Kenney realize that he can pass all sorts of legislation that normally probably wouldn't well, I mean, he's got a majority, so he can probably do what he wants. Anyway, he's just introduced legislation that will start to undo some of the protections and freedoms that exist under the law for unions. Uh, he wants to make it impossible for unions to spend money on political causes and enforce unionized employees to vote, to opt in, to allow for their union dues to be spent on political causes. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that union dues are just taken off your paycheck and then they go to the union. And then as a member of the union, you have a right to say what you want your union dues to be spent on. If you want it to be spent on building a community park or on a campaign to fight for better labor legislation with your government, that's like your right as an employee. But this is a really pernicious way for the Kenny government to try and introduce something in Canada that looks like what exists across the United States is right to work legislation, which starts to chip away at the at that right for employees to pay to an external organization to protect their rights on the workplace. It's very sneaky. Uh, the Alberta Federation of Labor uh, President Gil McGowan has already said that he says that this is unconstitutional. But the way that they're hiving off dues for X versus dues in general is proof that uh, they are trying to learn from the attacks that were waged by the Saskatchewan government um, that ended up in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said that it's freedom of association. You know, union dues are, are protected by uh, the Constitution. So we'll see how far this goes. Um, But I mean, Kenny is just trying to cut off his opposition at the knees and it's a crass political play. And I mean, fuck that guy. Wow. It just seems like to me, like undemocratic and kind of anti-capitalist. Like if companies are people too, and companies can get together and lobby for their interests, like why shouldn't labor be able to hire lobbyists to push for their interests? Like it's just another, it's just another power vector in the economy. Like what, like it just seems like a, a blatant... You know, our side gets to do this, yours doesn't kind of a thing. Well, yeah, like, like as I said, union members have a, a mechanism to be able to say that they disagree with the way that their money is being spent. It would be akin to like you go to the grocery store and the grocery store is like donating money to a political party that you hate. Um, you've got a right as a person that shops at that grocery store to like, I'm not sure, pay less for your cereals because they're supporting the United Conservative Party. Like it's a complete double standard. It doesn't make any sense. And um, I suspect that they'll pass it. And then we'll have to see this probably go to court. Oh, that's a tortured analogy, but I think I follow you. Duly noted. (laughs) Let's go lightning round. I got another one here. The Daily Beast has reported that Twitter has suspended 16 accounts that were part of a network of fake personas. Nothing new there, except what were these fake personas? They were pundits. These were fake personas that were placing op-eds and editorial pieces. These people didn't exist, but they were writing Dozens of opinion pieces that were published in in kind of like a loosely affiliated network of right wing sites, uh, Newsmax, Washington Examiner, Jerusalem Post, Real Clear Media. 
the Daily Beast calls this the Arab Eye Persia Now Network. These were pundits who were like bringing in uh, very specific points of view on Middle East issues. And in order to get around, like one way that you can tell if somebody's fake on Twitter is you can do a Google image search of their Twitter headshot. And then you can see, oh, they stole that photograph from some, you know, kid in Kansas or something or, or you know, uh, some old movie. So how do they get around this? They actually uh, used uh, artificial intelligence photograph generators. There's There are these artificial intelligence algorithms that will generate a human picture out of just data. And that way, it's a completely original image of a human being that cannot be reverse searched to find that it was uh, fraudulent. So all that being said, among the websites that published fake op-eds from fake people from these Pixar pundits, the Post Millennial. The Post Millennial ran an editorial about Iraqi protesters that was written by uh, the very learned Middle East analyst Joseph Laba, who does not exist, and who has <laughs> a CGI headshot with three front teeth. Uh, the artificial intelligence uh, generator, it has a hard time with ears and teeth. So it gave him like three buck teeth, uh, like like three kind of Tom Cruise-y. Uh, anyhow, that's what the Post Millennial did. They published a fake dude, doesn't exist. And this is the part that I love. Press Progress asked them about this, and the post-millennial is standing by their story. They do not <laughs> dispute that this Joseph Laba doesn't exist. They took down Joseph Laba's um, artificially generated headshot. But, uh, you know, they said that this editorial, which, you know, reportedly parrots talking points that were pushed by the United Arab Emirates, they still say, hey, who cares if this guy exists or not? It was a well-written, well-reasoned opinion piece about an important <laughs> issue, and we will be reposting it under our, you know, company post-millennial byline. Sure. Oh, <laughs> thank you, post-millennial. These duly noteds write themselves. Yeah, I hate those guys. Um, they've been on Canada Land, haven't they? Somebody from Post Millennial. Yeah, you know, I I am in constant search for a conservative foil. I want somebody to come on the show and actually present the other side of a lot of the stuff that we talk about. So we're always having these conversations like some people are just too toxic to put on. And the editor of the Post Millennial, we did a vet and we're like, well, this guy hasn't really said anything that would prohibit, you know, at least to my editorial sensibilities, having him co-host the show. So he came on the show. It was okay. Uh, I'm not going to speak ill of a co-host, but uh, the search for that conservative foil lives on. Yeah. Your problem is that you don't want a foil that's got three front teeth. <laughs> So I'll duly note it, but your standards are too high if you want a conservative. Nora, they do exist, and I want to talk to them more than I do. But thank you. You have one last one for us? Yeah, I want to duly note the uh, relative of conservative MP Karen Vecchio, uh, and she's an MP around London, Ontario area. One of her relatives was apparently busted for $35,000 in drugs, including fentanyl, $24,000 in cash, and weapons. And uh, the St. Thomas police force actually scrubbed their own press release and asked media to unpublish their reports about the fact that this had happened. Uh, Vecchio has asked for privacy in this moment of difficult times for her family. I've just added that little bit at the end and um, it denies that this has anything to do with pressuring the media to not air her family's dirty laundry. You just want to scream at these folks and um, to Karen Vecchio, who I've met um, before. She's not the sharpest tool. Uh, she's probably actually the sharpest tool in the conservative toolbox. But, um, you know, we need journalists to be able to report on this stuff. This is a matter of public interest, in my opinion, and probably yours. And so I hope that you will duly note this.
I will duly note it. And furthermore, I want to list, I want to find out, and maybe we'll put some resources into trying to find out when the cops said, hey, can you unpublish this article, news media, because it uh, mentions the relative of an MP and it's embarrassing for her family or whatever the cops said. I want to know who unpublished it. I want to know who I want to know who altered it in any way. So sometimes these things are hard to figure out, but uh, sometimes we're pretty good at that. So uh, we're going to try. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity. And they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis. And we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Martin Amos, David Brooks, Stephen Pinker, David Frum, Salman Rushdie, Francis Fukuyama, Malcolm Gladwell, Nora, is that, uh, what is, is that the starting lineup for the Little St. James softball team? Yeah, is that the Epstein flight log? <laughs> Heavens no, it is just a smattering of the <laughs> dozens of intellectuals, political luminaries, uh, literary geniuses who have all signed on to what is titled A Letter on Justice and Open Debate in Harper's Magazine. They are collectively, Noam Chomsky is on this list, Margaret Atwood, it goes on and on. And what they write is, they are taking a stand. Uh, They write, our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy, and the arts. They seem to like that. But resistance must not be allowed to harden into its own brand of dogma or coercion. Censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. Uh, Nora, are they talking about us? 
Sorry, did David Frum literally sign a letter that says that and he's the guy that came up with Axis of Evil? <laughs> he should never be allowed to outlive that ever. No. Yeah. You know, this is a cry from the heart. <laughs> Editors, they say, are being fired simply for writing controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists barred from writing on certain topics. Professors investigated for quoting works of literature in class. They have all of these kind of generalized examples, but I did note that they don't actually list any, there's no names in this. Yeah. There are no specifics. And I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so so do I. I, I mean, like, first yeah. of all, um, I was pretty much not happy that I had to read the letter. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, I, I saw the buzz around the letter before I actually read it. It's so predictable. It's so predictable. And, you know, we can go through every single one and talk about their own sins and how they have pretty much engaged in exactly what they're saying that they're opposed to. Or we could go through the list and talk about all the folks on that list who've been, you know, accused of plagiarism. Or we could talk about the folks who have been accused of transphobia because they are engaging in open and and really aggressive transphobia. I, but I don't even know if we need to go through all that because the letter is so laughable that it's more like an artifact of a crumbling literary empire that is going down as hard as American liberalism is going down. And they're just flailing. And in their flailing, they just flailed out a letter that a bunch of people signed. And those of us who are watching them flail and collapse and those of us who don't really have much of a platform, certainly not in comparison to a lot of them, asking ourselves, what the fuck is this? I think that to go through that list and find the transgressions of the people on it would be only playing into the argument that they're making, uh, though certainly there are some transgressions among them. And I think I will give, like, look, th there's some incredibly smart and uh, there's some great minds there. There's some incredibly creative people. There's some people there who are a lot smarter than me. And I think I want to give them some some due here. I think all too often there is this sense that whenever somebody raises the issues of like um, the intrusion of like Marxist doctrine into the academia or what's happening to free speech or what's happening is cancel culture going too far. You know, people listening to the show might think at times that uh, we're accusing anybody who raises those issues of being some sort of a crypto fascist and that that's just a cover for the fact that they're actually like Ezra Levant or something. And I want to just say really clearly that I think that probably the majority of the people who signed that letter are in good faith. They are smart people and they are worried. They are from a tradition of thought and intellect and rigor that has to do with looking for the warning signs the you know that the George Orwell told us to be on the lookout for looking out for newspeak that when people start to intrude upon language be very afraid when people start to uh, tell you what you can and can't talk about or what words to use. Be very, very afraid. I think that these sort of like the intellectual tradition of Orwell and Christopher Hitchens, these people care about that stuff and, the, and they are legitimately worried. And I think they're wrong. I think this is a moral panic. I think they're sincere for the most part. And I think they're just wrong. And I think that they are subsuming their own personal issues and not reflecting enough on just the fact of what you're saying, Nora, their power is crumbling because it's not about free speech. You know, when somebody decides not to publish a book, most people don't get their books published. There's just a shift happening mm -hmm. into whose books are getting published. So when Ian Baruma, who signed that letter, when he signs that letter, I'm sure he's sincere in his feeling that Western intellectualism is, is crumbling. But what is the specific instance that he's not mentioning in that letter? I suspect that Ian Baruma thinks that the greatest injustice to free thinking was his own disgraceful exit from the New York Review of Books after he 
exuberantly shit his pants with that Gameshi essay. Right. You know, I think that Margaret Atwood, when she signs that letter, she is thinking about Stephen Galloway, who she supported, uh, who she felt was the target of a witch hunt at UBC because the rape allegation against him, she feels is unfounded. But the fact of the matter is UBC found copious evidence of inappropriate conduct towards students that does merit Stephen Galloway's removal from that university. J.K. Rowling, I'm sure when she signs that letter, thinks that the greatest injustice that anyone has ever suffered is what happened to her on Twitter for her transphobic tweets. But you know what? J.K. Rowling is still J.K. Rowling. And the, the confusion that these people seem to have, as smart as they are, that all of these sensorial uh, consequences are somehow akin to a government silencing speech, you know, to a government locking people up and unpublishing books. These are just people saying, we don't want to hear from you anymore. This is just people on Twitter saying, no, enough of that. I don't want that book. And then sometimes institutions say, okay, we're not going to publish that book. Yeah, to be fair to the way that they wrote that letter, they actually don't say that it's akin to governments locking it up. But they're, what they're worried about is this mob acting in a way that then silences speech itself. They actually do draw an interesting line between government's attack on free speech and then average people's attack on free speech. And that that average of people's attack on free speech, that is where you see that Orwell tradition talking about what is safe to say and what will the mob not let you say. But what we're witnessing is just is basic class solidarity, right? These are all people who have a lot of money. Every single one of these people has a lot of money because of their cultural production. And I, I think that it was said so succinctly on Twitter by Samita Makapodai, who's the executive editor of Teen Vogue, when she said, are you actually being canceled or can you not just keep up? Like when they start by saying things are changing incredibly and we support like the movements for black lives, blah, blah, blah. And then but we're mad about the the mob. It's like you motherfuckers have never actually had your speech curtailed. Like you really have not. Like J.K. Rowling has never had her speech curtailed and she's made a lot of money off of her free speech and her creativity and the love that people have for whatever she's written. I got to be honest, I've never read anything she's written, so I'm totally ignorant about J.K. Rowling and her talent. Oh my God. I've suffered through it with my kids and I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose supporters <laughs> for this, but like the prose is turgid. I mean, I, I turned to C.S. Lewis in the middle of like the fifth fucking Harry Potter book and I'm like, oh, a sentence, a sentence that scans, a sentence with rhythm. God bless you, a writer. But the anyhow, I'm sorry, this is off topic. I don't like it. <laughs> no, I, I so yeah, I'm totally ignorant on on the the level of talent and I don't actually even care to say that these people are talented or not talented. It's it's actually it's besides the point. They are they are witnessing an emergence of new intellectualism, intellectualism that bucks the status quo. And my god, talking about cancel culture, I mean, it would be one thing if they were talking about cancel culture and and no one else was and it was like the liberal class trying to protect themselves from quote unquote being canceled for like transgressions, actually. But Donald Trump is also waging a war against cancel culture. And so what is the connecting line between people who likely have no use for Donald Trump or are very concerned about what he's doing to the United States and him using the same language? It's all code for class protectionism that they yeah, want. They're trying to cleave off some sort of uh, category saying, yes, let us let us resist Trump, but let us resist Trump our way. Let's not, you know, right. and, and look, I have more sympathy, at least for where they're coming from than where they arrived. I mean, I, I was sort of educated in a, you know, a liberalism that was a response to the Holocaust. I'm afraid of mobs. I don't like being in a crowd. I was taught to kind of revere the individual. Jordan Peterson crying about the individual. I care about the individual. I, I've never felt comfortable holding up a sign, you know. 
I don't think that a bunch of people agreeing uh, with each other on Twitter and independently saying something and boosting each other's speech is a mob. You know, there's just there's a category error at the core of this, their misunderstanding of what social media is. If they care about individuals and people having a voice, this is the consequence of people having a voice. That's all that's changed. Well, and that their voices are hard to ignore. Like this, this is the first time that someone as rich and as powerful as a lot of these people can hear from average people, right? In in decades past, they would just be in their gilded fucking writing hovel and they wouldn't have to go out and they wouldn't have to hear the mob saying, your writing is shit or, or whatever. And they would have this, this, this carefully manicured life to only hear the praise that they would want to hear. And when you get to a level of fame and of fortune because your ideas have, you know, are exactly dovetailing with where the democratic feeling of your nation state is at, right? A lot of these folks would call themselves real defenders of liberalism. They enjoy a a vaulted status. Those of us, the plebes that have been hit by police, that have inhaled tear gas, that can't get published, um, not because of our transgressions, but because of the things that we write, or those of us that don't have fucking assistance to read the threats that are sent to us, we understand very well that this is not like nothing that they say in that letter is is like true. It's not it, it doesn't play itself out in any material way for the average person like they talk about justice the letter doesn't say a word about justice they just slid justice into the title hoping that maybe i don't know we wouldn't read past the title and say that these people are for justice but they are afraid of average people and and it doesn't get much more complicated than that and social media has brought average people to them and it's very difficult to be on social media and not see average people telling you you know fucking 30 times a second that you suck There are a lot of things about social media that are really bad and social media can be used to create these swarm attacks where you can't even use your your social media because it's just like nonstop people kind of chirping at you, which is obviously something I've experienced. But that's not free speech. That is not free speech. Free speech, as you say, is is freedom of thought and freedom uh, to operate within a state and not be worried that you're going to be beaten by the police. And people do not have free speech in North America. There are a lot of people that do not have the pleasure and privilege of having free speech, whether it's because they've been literally hurt by police forces or because they are blocked from being able to get education because of poverty, like whatever, because of white supremacy. This letter is not that. <laughs> it's like they're they're like listening to what the room is saying and they're like, OK, we hear you. And then they like completely get it completely wrong. And it's why they're being so ridiculed. And it's just another artifact, I think, on this long march towards the death of liberalism. Well, listen, uh, I'll ridicule them with everybody else, but I ultimately don't want to throw them on, on a heap of yesterday's garbage. There are some great minds and we need those minds. You know, I, I think what you're saying is, is largely apt. Margaret Atwood has enjoyed a position where I think quite correctly, she's been hailed as a feminist hero for her work works and has was unaccustomed to having people question her feminist credentials. And when they were, she, you know, clutched her pearls and went running to the Globe and Mail and said, moi, you know, uh, me, Margaret Atwood. And I would say to this plea for us not to close our minds, I would plead back to the people on that list. Don't close your minds, you know, uh, because you've got some criticism that that you were not prepared for and that hasn't happened to you in decades. Uh, Consider what people are saying, because I think that people on that list have a lot to contribute. So, you know, It's just unfortunate to see this closing of ranks. I mean, you talk about a mob. All of these people are more than equipped to articulate their positions individually and to give specifics. I mean, evidence-based research. Why are they all ganging up? 
I don't like the look of that either. So, you know, nothing about that sat well with me. And, you know, they've rendered it into something that's very hard to discuss because they're unwilling to actually put, you know, they won't even say the term cancel culture, though that is obviously what they're talking about here. Yeah, but it's also more damaging than that because it's it's very confusing and it's very disorienting. And so what they're engaging in is actually casting aspersions on those of us who would be calling them out. Right. So that then then yeah, they, it's a blanket like let anyone who criticizes me be castigated by this letter and all of the moral uh, and intellectual authority of everybody who signed it. You know, it's just this kind of like, you know, all purpose condemnation. I, I don't like it. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And and at the exact same time where you have Donald Trump saying that he's going to fight cancel culture and all this kind of bullshit, that's the doublespeak. This is the real doublespeak. And so like far from operating in the tradition of, of Orwell and, you know, and I'm also I've never fucking bought into that. I, you know, when I was at the, the School of Journalism at Ryerson University, the chair had his uh, screensaver was the quote attributed to Voltaire about I will I will defend to the death your right to say stupid shit or whatever it was. And I it's like, th- that's not a great quote, everybody. But Anyway, I'm, I'm outside that tradition. But even still, they, they're still not even at operating in that tradition. Because if you look at who in the blogosphere, who uh, in alternative press, who at Teen Vogue is writing the most radical, deep thinking, uh, fundamental kinds of, of, of writing, their names are not on that list for a reason. And those are the folks that the people on that list should be looking at and saying, this is the future or should be the present. This is the kind of writing, the kind of thinking, the kind of analysis that we should be supporting. And they're not. They're not doing that. They're, they're protecting themselves. They're protecting their class. J.K. Rowling's protecting her right to be like, all women menstruate. And, and it's frankly, I find it just pathetic, to be honest. And there's, there's a lot of names on that list I don't know. I have to be honest. I'm, I'm not really, I don't pay attention to that kind of literary world. The few people on that list that I that I know, it's it's pretty disappointing to see Jeet Hare's name on that for sure. And Chomsky's, I mean, so close to 100 years old, I can only imagine why he signed his name to it. It's a passing of the torch when the torch won't actually be relinquished by people who are like, we are going to hold on to this power. And I look forward to kicking them out of those roles. Orwell still matters. Okay, that's your Canada Land shortcuts. Thank you, Nora. Thanks. It's never been easier to support Canada Land. If you uh, get something out of the work that we do and you want to help it, click on the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And for five bucks Canadian a month, you can get our premium feed and be helping us out. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I will read what you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. We're on Instagram at Canada Land Show. And Nora, where can people find you and your podcast? Yeah, you can find my podcast at uh, sandyandnora.com or Sandy and Nora on Instagram. Unfortunately, I had to join it. And you can find my writing, my most recent piece in Passage. Our website is canadalandshow.com where you will find uh, a new episode of Commons that is all about the plight for dignity and rights of the disabled in long-term care. I don't know what else to tell you. you got to listen to this season. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Please support Canada Land. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.